Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Mary Matisson. Mary's author of Dying to Make a Difference, inspires passionate talk about death. She facilitates individuals, healthcare, and community leaders to take our experiences of death and dying to make a difference in our lives and deaths. She's led change in- initiatives with the California Transplant Donor Network, the American Heart Association, co-authored the Sacred Dying Volunteer Vigil Training, and launched the first nationally endorsed public health campaign for end-of-life conversations and care with the NHS in England. Lessons she learned from life and her mother's death catalyzed Conversations for Life, a facilitated approach to engage family, staff, and communities in end-of-life conversations. She's a requested speaker at conferences and has delivered workshops for thousands of healthcare professionals and the public. And she's the Director of Community Engagement and Education with Mission Hospice and Home Care and leads workshops, consults on projects internationally. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Glad to have you here today. Um, uh, let's start with what what I would say, which is that a, a death near you, regardless of the fact that you are already working with these kinds of issues, a death near you led to an epiphany. Would that be a, an applicable word in your own mind? Yes, and actually you you wrote that um, as part of this prepping for this interview. I really appreciated that. Um, it was. It was uh, my mother's death and actually the conversations that we held up until her death um, and some of the shocking things about her death for me led me to an epiphany about um, some things I needed to do and know more about as a woman, as a daughter, and also things that I thought were possible for communities. So that's that's interesting to me because often I'm having conversations with people who hadn't thought too much about these kinds of issues, end of life and grief and et cetera, uh, until something befell them, as it were, uh, until they were kind of forced by circumstance to look. But that isn't quite true of you, I wouldn't say. You had thought. So what would you say um, really changed for you right, right in that moment, uh, different from how you viewed it before? You know, I um, it's a, a very good question. I had worked in and around death and dying. Um, I'd somehow always been drawn to um, to that work, and part of that, I think, is the intimacy and the transformation and the truth that comes out of those experiences. Um, but they were at arm's length, and when um, partly the surprise and the catalyst for me with my mother's experience, we had a conversation that was very um, profound for both of us, I think, 10 days before she died. 
and yet neither of us knew that she would die in the next 10 days. So the suddenness, uh, the importance and the significance that that conversation took on, the suddenness of, of her death after, and the steps that happened in that 10-day period um, kind of blew my mind as to everything that I had learned and been taught about end-of-life care and where some of the big gaps were. Um, mm. and, the, and the real, I guess the real catalyst, the most obvious, is that although I had taught a lot about end-of-life issues, um, I had always hoped to be there. I was there for my, mother, or for my father's death um, as he took his last breaths. And I somehow just assumed I would be there for my mother's, and I couldn't get a plane ride home and, um, in time for her death. And that, to talk about the grief part of it, that was the catalyst. That was the the um, the moment where I realized um, the depth of grief for myself, but um, I guess part of what I transformed into how none of us can be sure we're going to be there for someone else, so what can we do collectively? I tend to translate the personal to the group, so feel free to take me back to either. (laughs) (laughs) I will, believe me. Um, Because what's, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to have you read about, uh, from your book about the conversation with your mother, but I want to follow up first just a little bit on that, on what you just said, because... um, I have this sense for myself, and and now I've interviewed so many people about these incredible moments of illumination, that there's something about being out of control, there's something about being in completely unknown territory that can either sink you or lead to a kind of creativity, a, a, a sort of leap of imagination, maybe. That's what I hear in what you're saying, that you're that there was no way to kind of compute the experience in in this sort of planned way, and you got broken out of certain ways of thinking and invited into others. Does that fit? Yeah, I, you? I would absolutely, and I would say it's both. Um, it can sink you and <laughs> and open right. up. That. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's both. Yeah, and it was both. And it's actually only in hindsight, um, after going through the experience and years later, finally after having written it down in a book that I, um, and actually after having read through my own words, um, it's a continual learning process where I've realized that... um, it was almost like the vortex of emotion birthed something else, but I actually hadn't named that until more recently. You've been doing that work for a long time to help people realize that I should have known about your work sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about my own mother a lot uh, while I was reading, and uh, I had a kind of a new thought about it. Um, my mother died right as I, well, she was diagnosed two months after I started doing this show. And she died less than, less than a year after I started doing it. So <laughs> there's definitely an inter- intersection there. And um, she, at some point, she had pancreatic cancer. At some point, 
started talking to me and saying, I, I don't want to keep going. I don't want to keep doing the treatment, which was fine with me. I didn't even need her to start it, right? But I, I was thinking as I read your book that uh, those, like, she didn't say that to my brother. She said it to me. Uh, and then after we talked, she communicated with my brother. But there's some way that maybe the work that we do invited those conversations and I hadn't necessarily put that together so consciously until that until reading your book right great and and yes yeah, so if you hadn't had that background would she have been open to have that conversation with you you know we'll never know um, no there's no way to know but it is um I I hope that made it a little bit easier for her to bring it up mm, I hope that you know, that was um, helpful to her in some way. Um, can you share the, 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 you know, part at the beginning of your book about this conversation, since we're referring, it, referring to it a lot, that sure. people hear a bit? Sure. Let me just um, get that open. Um, So it's actually the the first chapter, and it starts with, I have something to tell you that I don't think you're going to want to hear, my mother said. I had no idea what she was going to say next. October 14th, 2004 was just an ordinary day, yet it will forever remain the day my mother and I had one of the most important conversations of our lives. I had known my mother was coming to the end of her life, and I had been avoiding it. But on a daily basis, my mother, Ruth Elizabeth Matheson, was not dying. Yes, she, like many older people, had been living with a grocery list of chronic conditions for years. Congestive heart failure, pacemaker, osteoarthritis, high blood pressure, low thyroid, one knee replacement, all check. But she was not dying. She was living, and living quite well, thank you very much, at home. For some years now, a one-room apartment at Silverdale Grove was where Harvey's wife of 52 years and widow since he died five years earlier... Jean and Mary's mother had meals in a dining room with others over 70 who, for one reason or another, could not or no longer wanted to live in their family homes. I have something I want to tell you that I don't think you're going to want to hear, she said. And the next words she spoke, I don't want to struggle anymore. Her words pierced any distance between us, a truth spoken so clearly and simply that time stood still. That phrase caught my breath and heart simultaneously as tears flowed down my cheeks without the usual barrier between my emotions and my capacity to express or hide them. After all the mixed-up emotions and experiences we'd shared as a mother and daughter over the years, struggle and guilt, love and obligation, fear, martyrdom, and at times emotionally, emotional or physical distance, somehow through it all there was a deep and undeniable connection between my mother and me. In that moment, I, her 39-year-old daughter, felt the reality that I would lose her one day. In that precise moment, I knew how much I loved her. She was a human being sitting before me asking the most vulnerable question we may ever ask another human being. Will you let me go? Such an amazing, (laughs) such an amazing moment to have with your mother. Yes? Oh, yeah. And, and, this and it's not an easy relationship, I tell you, but that moment was just, it well, was just pure. And maybe even pure. because, I mean, to trust you with that conversation like that, mm. uh, beyond whatever 
the truth of your relationship together was is is very moving to me mm. and and I'm thinking about I, I've been thinking a great deal about my own children and what how they're going to respond to the end of my life mm. uh, it's really been very much on my mind lately for what reason I don't know but mm. the the idea it's very uh, wonderful to me to imagine them uh, it would take me pushing through. Your mother had to push through, didn't she? Yeah. Because she didn't think you wanted to hear it. No, she didn't. And she knew we'd talked about a lot of things around this, and normally she didn't want to talk about it. But that day she was ready. She was so fed up and so frustrated and so, I, I don't know all I don't know all the so's, but something happened. And you're, you're worried about her trust to push through that and open that conversation um, just for you with your children, for women and men and their children, it, it is, it was an incredible gift of trust um, and opening that, that we would have completely missed both of us, the experiences that happened after if we hadn't had that conversation. And she led the, I mean, I kept trying to talk about the basics of stuff, but she, she opened the door and I was, I was there, but it was completely unexpected. It wasn't any kind of planned discussion that we set a meeting for that just came up. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm also thinking that, um, that the reality of not just how do we die and, you know, so I accept that someday all those theoretical things mm. are different from hearing I'm ready. Yeah. You know, especially given, as I understand it, her particular illnesses were being managed, as it were, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was no... Um, we have to accept this, which, of course, I have a lot of cancer experience, and often you get to that point where you have to accept it, and then maybe you have a conversation. But she was saying, I want to stop trying to avoid this, and I think that's a really different conversation, and reminded me of conversations with my mom, because her treatment was more or less working, you know, yeah. it was improving things, but she didn't yeah. want to do it anymore. No, and that was, it. it's kind of, I call it the enough is enough conversation. Um, and you're right, part of what was unusual in my circumstance and maybe part of what caught me off guard more about it was it wasn't cancer. There wasn't any one thing that was the diagnosis or the um, the thing we were all rallying to accept. She just had a whole slew of stuff that at some point something was going to whether it was old age or a condition was going to be the end of her life, which allows us all to go on in our merry way thinking it's never going to happen. And um, that that conversation in particular was about she was probably facing another knee replacement surgery and she didn't want to do that, but she didn't Mm. know she had any other choices. So in hindsight, it became a conversation about I don't want any more and that led to... Um, where the conversations continued to go and, and the choices that she made about her care. But it was about something as simple as a knee replacement. <laughs> I, um, I've spoken with friends since that it was as simple as a treatment for 
um, pneumonia or antibiotics for something. It's, um, but these conversations now with what we're facing and what's possible in medicine um, are part of the wider, deeper conversation about what kind of care do we want and how do we want to live at the end of our lives. And and what occurs to me listening to you is that uh, you don't hear much anymore about people dying of old age. Mm. Um, and to me, old age, that term, is a series of conditions, isn't it? It just means you're old with conditions. <laughs> um, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Actually, which, in, go ahead. Well, I'm I'm just thinking that <laughs> that the that the sense of medicalizing uh, end of life, quote unquote, mm. um, makes it a very narrow band of things that really get called old age. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean there are um, very fortunate, amazing people that have no other conditions, and they literally are the the few strong and mighty that are still, you know, the octogenarians, <laughs> and they're just amazing. And um, and some probably have stayed out of the healthcare system their entire life. Um, they're uh, in England, actually, where I've lived for a while. Um, old age has become, um, or aging has become another chronic condition because of all the things that you've talked about so that the systems can start to think about it's not just aging. That I'm not big on labels, but that is, um, you're right. For, well, for I think many those people, language just things, getting older is combined with right, a lot of other things. Right, like you're... you're uh, I think we might want to talk about this some after the break, which is coming up now, but your mother with all those conditions which are associated with aging. Yes. Uh, and so then if you just list them as conditions, uh, you know, she finally came up to this is the end of my life as opposed to these are all my conditions. Uh, and I just think that's interesting in terms of yeah. how language impacts us. So let's Absolutely. talk a little more about that when we get back because it interests okay. me a lot. And listeners, you can find links to my website, social media, at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Please be in touch. Uh, email me. Message me on Facebook or Twitter, LinkedIn, however you can find me. And to find Mary Matisson, go to www.marymatisson.com, and that's M-A-T-T-H-I-E-S-E-N.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. 
Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mary Matisson about her book, Dying to Make a Difference. And Mary, before the break, we were kind of talking about um, what I think is language, but is also just uh, bigger than, than that. The difference between having a bunch of conditions and uh, being an aging, let's say, mm. Um, mm. that that um, that moment when you're really looking at the end of your life, you know, literally and right now, has become a little mushy. Often, uh, what your mom did was to recognize that she was ready for the end of her life. Mm. even though she could have kept doing all that stuff she was doing. And yeah. that's that really stood out for me with the book, mm. that she she recognized that that's what was going on. And, and to me, you know, there are all these artificial cutoffs. For instance, I heard a doctor interviewed recently, and he said, when I'm 75, I'm going to quit all the medications that are prolonging my life yeah and I was thinking okay but when you get to be 75 that may not be how you're feeling about things you know being being someone who thinks in those terms a lot but he was quite determined about it uh what do you what do you have to say about that I'm not I, <laughs> I think I think the best next ice cream flavor might be coming out the day after and you'd have to stick around for that <laughs> um, I, <laughs> uh, that's just a personal insight to what I care about but I think um, <laughs> I think the um, I think part of the uh, awareness I don't know that it all came at the same time for my mom. It came out with what we ended up talking about, which were her options if she didn't want to continue, um, uh, just simply if she didn't want the knee replacement surgery. She didn't have to have it. And that led into a number of conversations. Well, then what does that mean? And and that she was on a lot of different... If she didn't want these things... She didn't have to, and actually in conversations we had following that, um, after a fall she took, was that um, 
a lot of the medications she'd been on were not cures for what she, for the conditions she was living with, but she is, just like many people, here, a medication is a cure. They weren't curing her. They were allowing her to live for as long as she had the quality of life she wanted to have. And so that was part, that was a big part of the awareness for me that I realized, um, to your point, we aren't aware as a culture. Yes, we know there's all these treatments now for things, but when we get to the point where enough is enough, where it's not giving us the quality of life that we want, the conversation about what how we choose if we want another treatment, if we don't, if we want to continue with chemo or we don't, are are people having the honest conversation about what if this isn't, what if I don't want to live my last days with 10 more treatments, which is exactly what's unfortunately happening to a significant amount of the population. And she did. She just, it started the whole conversation about she was done. You know, she didn't want to end her life, but she was done trying to push or force anything else. Um, I think I say somewhere in the book she she was never kind of that strong, strong stoic, push through it kind of personality in the first place. And certainly, as she was becoming more frail and at the end of her life, that wasn't wasn't who she was or what she wanted. So it became a a, a shift in the conversation between not uh, between care or treatment she thought was, she didn't think she had any choices. She thought she was just, had to go back, was part of this machine of living where she honestly couldn't understand how her body was still going when her, in her words, her soul or her spirit was done. She'd lived the life she wanted to live. And um, that might be a little overstatement. I can feel my mother over my shoulder right now. (laughs) But she'd had... (laughs) Um, but now, yeah. now, don't exaggerate. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, exactly. Don't overstate it. It wasn't all that good. Um, but the um, that point of choice, that point of awareness, that point of taking back her power um, in a very vulnerable place in her life, really, was um, really beautiful to witness and wonderful to be able to empower her to understand. I... Didn't I would have rather she stuck around um, longer, but not in the condition where she was angry and fed up and done. I totally got that, and I realized through the the process that she went through, I'd want the same thing. So, yeah, the the well, whole combination yeah. of aging and conditions and medical choices is much more complex than it used to be. And I want to talk about the in- impact on grief of those kinds of conversations, mm-hmm. um, since grief's my my deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's such a profound impact to have a reference point on the other person's um, way of looking at things. You know, for instance, with my wife. Uh, very early on in her illness, uh, we actually were not together as partners at the time. We were very close friends. And she gave me her power of attorney because she said, you're the only one in my life, including myself, who could um, pull the plug. Mm. I, I don't know why she thought I could do that. I still don't know why. But boy, did that help me later. I won't go into all the details. 
<laughs> I can hear that in your voice. Yeah, that's that's the <laughs> difference. Constant that's reference point. Yeah, because the thing that people and I've I've worked around this conversation for decades now um, in different aspects, and the thing that I hear people hold the most unresolved grief around is making decisions that they didn't know if they were what the person wanted. And there is no way to honestly, we, we, we can, this is your arena, but you can work through all sorts of aspects of that, um, even knowing it's what somebody wanted. They're very difficult things and grief still exists. Um, but you have this, this sense of, uh, I don't even know the language for it. There's something in you that knows you're on the right side, that knows as hard as it is, you're honoring their wishes. You are forwarding their legacy. You're, um, you're doing something that they would do. It, it, it's such a privilege because, like you said, you were put in the position where she said, you're the only one that could do this and they can't do it for themselves. And um, I, that's why I'm so passionate about that conversation because I think um, amidst everything else that goes on when people are ill or dying or, and bereaved, um, the ability to know in your heart and your whatever you believe in that you are acting in in the wishes and desires and direction of uh, it's they're an act of love to be able to carry that forward and a huge responsibility and privilege and you know honoring was exactly the word i had in my head by the way uh, when when it came out of your mouth, it feels mm-hmm. honoring of the person, not the less so because it's painful. Absolutely. Um, and I was hoping maybe now would be a time to to um, share the part of your book that uh, starts with you on the plane because I never want to ever give the impression that these things that we do to respond to loss are easy. They're really, really, really hard. It's just that many, many times things come out of it that are beautiful. Um, Certainly true for you. And I wondered if, yeah, I wonder if you'd, if you'd read that because I think that part of your book really puts the two together quite, quite well. Well, I will um, I will read that with a 30-second intro, and that there's an earlier part, which I'm not going to read, but just to, to your point, um, when I got the phone call that my mother died and I was in a hotel room in another state, um, that's, that was the, the depth of shock and, um, and grief. And so what I'm going to read now was um, when I was actually able to get on the plane um, the following day, and... So I wrote, to this day, I would like to thank the poor woman sitting beside me on that plane ride home. I was not just teary, I was sobbing and typing like a maniac on my laptop, taking occasional longing looks at the clouds outside the small window. When it was uncomfortably clear that I had run out of tissues, she handed me one. It was then I noticed I wasn't alone on that plane in my own bubble. When our eyes met, I knew I had to say something to explain this odd scene. 
I couldn't actually speak much, but found the words to say, my mother just died and I couldn't get a plane home in time. She looked at me lovingly, eyes glistening herself and said, oh honey, I've been there, as she took my hand. I'd held the hand of women like the one sitting beside me on the plane before. Women asking how to talk to their parent or child. Women whose loved ones had died. Yet I'd never been that woman myself. I had never sat in her seat. As I sobbed on the plane ride back home, it was as if the puzzle pieces of my meandering work life slotted into place. Oh, skipped a place. Let me back up. Somehow the seamless, unending keystrokes clicking away on my laptop on that flight home brought forth years of memories of families, my own and others, experiences with staff and patients on the front lines in healthcare, connections between silos and services not seen before, eternally unanswerable questions on the mystery and timings of life and death, and powerful emotions between a mother and a daughter. Underneath it all was the reality of how shocking it was for me to realize that I, of all people, insert your own image here, of large, indignant woman with hands planted firmly on hips, with access to so much information and support around death and dying, who taught others, in fact, was still blindsided by my own mother's death. I knew my collected experiences and skills were connected, but until I lived them with mom's death, I hadn't realized all the gaps between what my head understood, what my heart was now left reeling with, and what I was called upon to be and do as her daughter. As I sobbed on the plane ride back home, it was as if the puzzle pieces of my meandering work life slotted into place. The connections became clear between them. The information I as a daughter needed to support my mother. The conversations we and our family had to have to lead the way. The staff and systems that needed to come together, the community organizations and volunteers, and through it all, the repeated and often unexpected experiences of listening and coming from the heart, which at key points allowed us all to support what mattered most and to have peace of mind, even when it meant bending the rules. This happened when we didn't come from a fear of death, but were instead united by what mattered most in the last days of mom's life, everyone understanding their role, great or small, in making that possible, connecting it up from the heart. I started to dream and envision, what if... What was possible if the integration of all of this in communities where systems, staff, families, patients, and community organizations work together to support someone's last wishes? What if there was no stigma around death and dying, but a coming together? You know, I've, I've um, first of all, thank you, because that's, uh, we were talking earlier about kind of the, the moments that break through all of our plans and, you know, mm. expectations and thinking and just our sort of pure emotional being. Um, yes. And that's a moment like that, that then, you know, even at that moment, I'm sure it was a long time to form what you were going to do with the thoughts you had and the things you wrote in, you know, things you typed into your computer. But, um, they're all contained in that. Um, you know, it was, they are, and, and it wasn't until, um, like I said, I, I really reflected on and looked back on that, that it was like the emotional perfect storm, and it never made sense to me why I, had my, why I got my laptop out. It was like I was downloading something that had to come out, and it, so I, however you want to view it, um, but one lens on that is there was such an emotional vortex 
that had to come out somewhere. And um, I think there are other lenses on that as well that I believe in. But that that where to put that intensity of emotion. Um, for me, I'm glad I had my laptop because to sit in an airplane after that, um, I've, I'm saying in a long-winded way, I agree with you completely. I think there was a different, um, that depth of pain and loss and and combination of emotions because there was joy in it too that she got what she wanted. Um, mm. There was no place, I didn't know where to put it and it just, kind of came out in all this flood of memories. Yeah, I, I tend to be uh, a person who talks or sings in those moments. Um, not, <laughs> I write later. <laughs> I think the woman on the plane next to me was really glad I wasn't in a talking mood. <laughs> I sometimes I you know you wish for another person's way I wish I was somebody who sat down and wrote in uh, that that kind of moment because then I'd have a record <laughs> <laughs> well that that record followed me for a long time I tell you it wouldn't let me go so that's at least uh, yeah if we put it in writing you do have it to pick up again well, and it, it, just to, uh, it's about time for our second break, but just to put one more word into things that plague people um, mm. in grief. Uh, I've spent many, many hours in my office talking with people about not making it back. And um, I don't know, you know, it's more than an hour show, I guess, to talk about your prop process of coming to terms with that but I just wanted to recognize that that does have a big impact on people who plan to be there and I even missed my mom's by a few minutes yeah uh, oh, you know yeah so you know um, but, so I know yeah and um I just wanted I to acknowledge very, that a, a very short answer as you're going to break that's taken me many years to come to but you got to forgive yourself. I I appreciate you got to forgive yourself, and I also ap- appreciate the many years to come too. Completely. So let's Completely. Well, yeah. let's follow up on that a bit after the break. I think that sure. affects so many people. And while while we're having our break, you can go to my host page at Voice America or to my website weatheringgrief.com to find Mary. You can go to marymathison.com, Excuse me, m a t t h i e s e n dot com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Mary Matisson and Mary, before the break, um, we were talking about um, in one aspect of grief for many people, not not people who want to be there. There are, of course, many people who don't want to be there. Would, sure. would That's the last thing they'd want to do. But if you yeah. want to be there and you don't make it, the profound impact that has. has. And um, I think you were talking about both the grief of it and eventually years later, uh, the process of coming to forgiveness in not in not being being there, and let's talk a little more about that. In general, this it's we've come to the last segment so fast. Mostly, I want to talk about where your work has taken you and what what you're doing now with it all. But just to follow up on this a little, um, well, my you know, work is what I've done with it is actually part of what I've done with my grief. And I think it's part of what a lot of people um, have some calling to do out of their experiences of death. So maybe it's not such a big leap. Um, maybe it isn't. Yeah. So tell me, make the connections for people with, because uh, that's that's very intriguing, isn't it? That this kind of the maybe the one of the worst aspects of the experience for you, n- not being able to get the plane. Mm. also is connected with the impetus to do certain kinds of work that you do. Yeah, now. it absolutely is. Yeah, and um, so so just to touch on, um, because I know we spoke a little bit in, in the break about the, the amount of time it takes to have self-forgiveness around not being there or not doing things or the what-ifs after somebody died, um, the specifics of some of supporting my mother's choices not to have some of the medical treatments that others might have might agree or disagree with. Every step of the way, there were, it felt like new territory, it felt like unknown, and after the fact, felt like things that I could and did question until I surrounded myself more with people, both um, experts and lay people, who all reaffirmed through their stories, this is what happens, this is what's happening now, this, uh, this is important. And um, just to what we were saying before about honoring someone's wishes is an act of love. Um, and just to be clear, because there's so much out there right now, in my mother's case, it was not euthanasia. It's something that um, 
it was just about choosing not to continue different treatments that already existed. Um, but the and in my wife's case as well, just to be clear and, about and I that. So that was one of my passions of telling this story because I think we're very um, with the debate about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide globally in different states passing laws and not I, um, with that whole topic being its own subject matter, I think there's a whole wealth of information that people don't understand about the choices and options we have to honor the way when, when we think enough is enough. So that was part of why I, I really wanted to share the story because I kept hearing it from others and you've just said with your own cases, your own examples yourself. Um, but I think also part of, I mean, writing the book and doing the work I do is part of my, um, part of the catalyst that grief uh, burst. Um, so, um, and dying to make a difference is kind of a play on words. It was both her death and also my awareness that I will die. Um, as I call it, death is the greatest life coach. So, I think many of us are living with the stories and experiences of the death of someone close to us that we hold regrets from or we question or we would want the same things, um, but we're not talking about it and we're not connecting up our stories and the wisdom that we've gained, um, even from the, gre- the regrets, to channel that into a way to make a difference for our own care for our own families, um, and for the way we as a culture support people's wishes at the end of life. So um, my direct, um, I was a healthcare educator before I, before this with my mother's death, and I was very fortunate to work with a number of organizations that through her death I realized these, 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 Different elements of care or, or support or services um, from communities to health care to um, bereavement and spiritual care all exist, but they weren't connected. Um, they weren't connected in a way that, as I say, held my hand um, and told my family how to do this. We kind of had to piece together things, and I thought there had to be a way that people didn't have to piece it together. Um, People have died since the beginning of time. You'd think that we would know more about how to do this in the 21st century. Um, Mm. So I, um, but there's a lot more to know. And because we avoid the topic in general, we become um, ignorant of something that we will all face multiple times and have the opportunity to be um, supportive with others and create our own communities of people that will care for us. Um, so as I said before, kind of jokingly, this, um, this started out kind of altruistic when I was in my 30s, and it's now self, self-defense. I think we all <laughs> need to create you didn't um, You didn't know how much you were thinking about yourself, huh? No, uh, it's all about me now. Um, and it's, it's not. It's, it's about all of us. Um, and I think that well, it is, and it's about all of us. But I think channeling our, our energies and finding places where we don't keep our stories to ourselves, we share our stories, like on radio shows like yours, just over dinner um, with friends, um, and, um, and we find out what's available in our communities to support us from how to have a conversation to what care is available to 
when we decide enough is enough, what's hospice and palliative care, and what do our community volunteers know how to sit with and be with the natural course of dying and, and mm-hmm. to support those of us who are honoring our loved one's wishes. Um, so I, on that plane ride, I kind of downloaded a public awareness campaign, and um, the short story is... Um, ended up unexpectedly moving to England and with those plans in hand that I had started doing some work on in Northern California, um, launched with the NHS in England the first public awareness campaign about end-of-life conversations that did exactly that, that were stories of local people um, to inspire others to start the conversations like you and I are having right now, but also about their advanced care planning and to know what care was available from the community services through to the healthcare services, um, mm. and it was it was a dream, and um, and we did it, <laughs> uh, and and that became a kind of the catalyst for then workshops for healthcare staff who aren't comfortable starting these conversations, um, and ways that I was able to facilitate communities. Um, Nonprofit agencies, libraries, the scouts, um, senior centers coming together and say, how can we look at this as a community and is there something we want to do together to create a more compassionate community for those facing serious illness, death and dying. And every time I'm in a room with people facilitating that process, every person in that room has a story and they didn't know where to go or they didn't know what services exist and and they all want to do something. Um, I, th- I believe that we, I believe death has a lot to teach us and grief has a lot to teach us and if we listen and if we heed the wisdom that's embedded there. But we need to create the places in our culture to let that create the connections. And we should just... We should just mention uh, you're you're not you're not in Oakland where I am, but you're pretty local to where I am, and I know you're doing this exact work at um, Mission Hospice uh, in Redwood City, isn't it? We're, and we're San Mateo County, yes. San Mateo County, and um, that uh, I I see the programs that you put out, and they they speak directly to what you're sharing right now, getting different uh, different um, inspirations for that conversation going and trying to centralize that information um, I'm, I'm assuming you connect that work with what you did in England and kind of trying to get those conversations going a little more deeply where you are now we we are where I was very fortunate that Mission Hospice right here in in the Bay Area um, was really uh, has a legacy of being um, committed to the community as a nonprofit hospice and um, had been doing wonderful things about raising awareness and creating um, different events that people could come to in movies just to start this conversation um, and so I've been able to bring to the work here um, a community engagement and education program where we're, we've started in the last year to really work to develop partnerships across the county um, and lo- create some new materials to help people take charge of these conversations and 
um, and grow this the network that already is here. Um, mm. We're looking at another and, project to start to help people share their stories as well as part of that initiative, similar to what we did in England. So lots that's of fantastic, good things, and it's a long journey ahead for all of us. So <laughs> <laughs> for sure, and with many people also also on the road. Um, I know that from from this last several years. We're getting near the end of the show, and I don't want to get away because it's so in line with what we're actually talking about right now. If you could share the um, Leaving a Legacy part of your book, because this really is your mother's legacy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We just have like uh, two or three minutes left, and so let's let's move to that before we run out of time. Yeah, let me just go very quickly... Um, Let's see what I, so what I've uncovered with my own story is that my mission is not about a conversation or about death and dying at all. It's about life and living, really living, about love and letting go, about remembering the precious and inherent nature of life cycles working within each of us and the profound influence we can each have in the lives and the deaths of those around us. And if we are most fortunate, the profound influence that they will have in ours. So the surprising reason I remain passionate about the end of life is that it offers a daily reminder of the precious time we have to bring to what we know, love, and believe in to make our difference now, to follow our inner voice, to slow down, to listen, to be present to the things that really matter. They say you teach what you most need to learn, point well taken. Clearly, I'm a slow learner. But as a dear friend and hospice director says to me often, we don't have forever. We have all the time that there is. Or as Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer, put it in his commencement address at Stanford University, nearing the last days of his own life, death is the greatest invention. Not the iPad, not the internet, not a piece of beautiful technology that adorns millions of laps and desks into which I myself typed my story through snot bubbles on a plane ride home in 2004. Nope, death, the greatest invention. So yes, get on with it. Not your just not your big kahuna or your to-do list in your life, but the discovery and expression of the unique calling and combination of skills and gifts, of stories and connections, of letters written or yet to write that each of us holds within us without realizing until death knocks the door down or swings it wide open how significant it is, how significant you are, how significant we are to each other. Your legacy may be to move mountains. Your legacy may just be being you. In the years since my mother's death, I've been astoundingly privileged to hear the stories of, learn from, and work with literally thousands of healthcare staff and members of the public alike. I've facilitated dozens of communities with leaders and organizations who each wanted to launch their own initiatives to start conversations or connect up strengths in the communities to care. I've been inspired by meeting leaders of international campaigns and wildly innovative projects. In that time, I've lived my life between two communities, the rapid pace of San Francisco Bay Area and a small village in the north of England where there are as many sheep as people, where I have to admit I've learned the benefits of a slower pace and a sheer magic of a, of a cup of tea. As a baby boomer living abroad, I have found fantastic information and resources available about starting conversations. We're going to have to, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but we're gonna, we've run out of time. Go read the book, people. Thank you, Go Mary. Read the book. And next week, I'll have Laura Lewis. When her children were, were young, the suicide of her husband sent her on a quest for wellness. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.